Today I am speaking with the Very Bad Wizards, David Pizarro and Tamler Summers. They have a podcast by that name, which I've been on, I think, twice. We debated free will at great length. So if you're interested in that topic, you can, you can listen to us there. And I recommend you listen to their podcast. They touch fascinating subjects and uh, in quite the irreverent way. And they do fantastic movie reviews as well. David Pizarro is a professor of psychology at Cornell. He focuses on morality and moral judgment and the emotion of disgust. And needless to say, all of that is incredibly relevant to this time and any other. And his partner in crime, Tamler Summers, is a professor of philosophy at the University of Houston. And he focuses primarily on ethics and political philosophy and the philosophy of the law. And he specializes in topics like free will and moral responsibility, punishment, revenge, honor. Again, fascinating and all too relevant. In this podcast, we essentially took questions from Twitter. People had heard us on the Very Bad Wizards podcast and had topics they wanted us to address. We talk about free speech on campus. We do a fairly long post-mortem on my podcast with Scott Adams. So if you haven't heard that, you might listen to that first. Otherwise, feel free to skip ahead, especially if you're sick to death of hearing me talk about Trump. Uh, we talk about moral persuasion. And then we get into things like meditation and the sense in which the self may or may not be an illusion. Again, I encourage you to subscribe to their podcast because they are quite good. And now I bring you The Very Bad Wizards. I am here with The Very Bad Wizards, David Tamler. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Sam. I will have introduced you, and, and people will, may have heard our previous interviews on your show, but remind everyone where you are and what you, what you guys tend to focus on when you're not causing trouble on your podcast. Um, well, I am a professor of philosophy at the University of Houston. You are Tamler. And I am Tamler Summers, right. And when I'm not podcasting on Very Bad Wizards with David, I am working on this book, which I've been working on for quite a while, for the last few years, that's coming out in the spring, in the early spring, called In Defense of Honor. And it's about honor and morality. Yeah, you like honor. Right? That's, that's something we could talk about. We can add that to the list of things. Yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to that. And I'm uh, David Pizarro from Cornell University. I, when I'm not podcasting with Tamler and losing my cool on occasion, I, uh, I do research on moral judgment and especially on the effects of emotion on judgment. So uh, the emotion of disgust is something that maybe for the last 10 years I've been I've been researching and how that that can influence judgment, political judgment, and and moral and social judgment, um, and then just trying to teach the young minds, trying to sucker them into getting PhDs. Our listeners want us to talk about the moral panic on campuses as as one of the items. We, we went out on Twitter asking for topics, and I, I know you guys disagree with some people who think that it's a, it's a huge problem. And so I, I want to get into that because you guys are also on the front lines as professors. But first, let's just start with your podcast. Your podcast is 
fantastic. I'm a huge fan, and I'm a, a fan, even though it seems every other time I tune in, <laughs> you've said something disparaging about me. That's Tamler trolling you. I, I, I wipe my no. hands clean of this one. I, I think early on, I was disparaging of certain certain remarks from your book, The Moral Landscape, on moral relativism. Since then, I think we've been very even-handed and balanced. And we don't even would, say anything about it. You would about... think that. <laughs> Tam, I believe Tamler's watching a different movie. It's, I ha, it's an emotional truth, what I just said. Right. It's not a fact-based truth, maybe. But... Persuasive to somebody, nonetheless. Your podcast is great, and people should check it out, and, and we will provide a link or all the relevant links on my blog. But I'm just wondering, so your podcast, you're both professors full-time, and you have a fairly edgy podcast. I mean, you, you guys, you get into topics and you express opinions that I would think could conceivably get you in trouble. And this does actually connect with this first topic that has been suggested to us, this idea of a, a fundamental and spreading intolerance to free speech that's taking hold at the universities. Do you guys ever worry about what you're doing on the podcast with respect to your jobs? I mean, do you both have tenure? I mean, how do you think about your, your life at this point? Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll start by saying um, I think that at first it was what some people refer to, to use an analogy, if I may, uh, refer to as security through obscurity. Um, I was sort of convinced at first that nobody would be listening and and therefore it would be it would be perfectly okay but i've been actually quite surprised as so as our listenership has grown um thanks to the many wonderful guests um including sam uh and as our audience has grown i do not think and tamler you can correct me i i think one of the things that is is so nice about the long form podcast sort of discussion format is that um that people can hear they get to know you in a way that that the the things that you say are in a context of conversations, and I, I, for lack of a better word, I think they get to know your character a little bit. And and some of the crazy things we say, um, people really are good at taking in context. And I don't, I, I don't, Twitter ma maybe one or two that's emails specifically devoted to yeah. taking us out of context. <laughs> that's right. I mean, one time I expressed the fear uh, that we'd be taken out of context, and that that Twitter account started up. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I, I think maybe one or two times we've had somebody email us with maybe some anger about what we've said. Um, but you mean from your own institutions? No, 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 no. From, from our listenership, from our own institutions, I, I genuinely think, I mean, part of it is I haven't, I haven't uh, made it sort of a, a, anything that I talk about too much in my own institution. Um, in part because of that worry. Um, Honestly, to connect it to the topic, this is one of my points of evidence when I say that I think people exaggerate the degree to which there's a chilling effect or that people can't express their views if they don't toe the line with, um, you know, the progressive agenda or whatever. It's, you know, we, I, I think neither of us do that. I think, um, you know, maybe me even less than Dave. And I haven't heard one single, not a single complaint from any colleague who listens to it, from any person at my institution who listens to it. And there are, there are a bunch. Nobody has taken umbrage by a single thing that we've said. And we've said some 
repugnant shit as you know that's part of our <laughs> that's part of our trademark and i think it's for the reason that dave says is you know people get to know us and they know i think that our hearts are in the right place and so as long as they know that they're going to allow you to be a little edgier or more inappropriate and not try to shut you down and so this is one of the things that makes me think that these incidents are not as it's not as widespread a phenomenon as it's portrayed by some in the media but there's a relevant part there that we didn't answer which is we both have tenure but we we i think we got them we got tenure after maybe a a year of doing the podcast when we started i don't think we had tenure but we do have tenure just to to add that right okay are you guys as irreverent or edgy in the classroom, or is there a very big difference between your podcast persona and your your professor hat? Uh, I teach a course, Intro Psychology, which is largely freshmen uh, with about 800 students enrolled. For many of them, it's their first experience in a lecture course in college. And while I probably tone it down, um, I don't purposefully, I mean, part of it is your persona kind of changes depending on the situation. So we, 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 it's more like we tone, we, we raise it up a notch on the podcast sometimes, but, but largely I say crazy things in my class all the time. Um, and I've had students who take delight in writing it down. Um, the, there was once a, a, somebody on Facebook who would, who would quote me, um, extensively why I got a word document at the end of one semester from a student with a list of all the crazy things I had said. But usually again, I think not on the first day, sort of you, you build, you build yourself up and and always, I think at least I try in the, in an attempt to communicate something well. So if I drop an F-bomb, it's usually because I want somebody to remember something. I'll give an example. When I, when I talk about evolutionary psychology, for instance, um, I remind students that if a claim is made that natural selection caused something, it has to be directly tied to the mechanism of survival and reproduction um, or else or else it doesn't work through natural selection. So I just remind people, unless it leads to more fucking, um, it's the, it's not an evolutionary argument like adaptiveness. Clearly not. No and, other I, and I say that in an, in an attempted function. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's an attempt to, much to the chagrin of my mother. It's an attempt to solidify a principle. <laughs> Maybe I'm just making it. It sounds a little post hoc to me. <laughs> you just want to laugh. You yeah, got 800, yeah. 18 year olds in front of you. It's your one, one moment of stand up for the day. And Tamler, are you, do you tone it down? Because I'm not drunk usually when I teach. So, so that's one difference. But and every once in a while for the podcast, we, uh, do, we put do down drunk a podcast. few, um, probably me again, a little more frequently. I've done that once. Plus <laughs> some other things, which I won't <laughs> divulge. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I think it's exactly what Dave said. You build up a little trust over the course of the semester and they sort of get you and you're, you know, like I, I, I'm somebody that likes to go up and approach the line. I get bored when everybody is talking and it's a little too everyone's being too polite or dancing around certain topics and I think that students like that and especially now when I think a lot of these students at least at my institution which is a public institution and they're and they're working jobs and they're uh, stressed out taking five classes and 
a lot of them have family issues that they're dealing with and anxiety issues that they're dealing with. It is nice to just have a place where people can, you know, not watch what they say and not feel like they have to walk on eggshells. So that's at least the kind of environment that I try to build. And again, in classes, I have yet to find that uh, to be a problem, even remotely, like not one single complaint, at least one that has reached me. Now we have to reconcile our worldviews because, <laughs> and, and you know many of these principal experts, really. How do I square what you guys have just said with what Jonathan Haidt is saying and, and really canonizing in the, the heterodox academy? You know, worrying about this creeping moral panic that is fundamentally antithetical to the, the core values of a university. I'm sure yeah. David knows Jonathan, but perhaps you do too, Tamler. You guys really should have him on your podcast to talk about these things because I'd like to hear what he would say. But he's really worried about this. And then you have the cases of like Nicholas Christakis, who I'm sure at least David knows, Yale. You have Brett Weinstein, who at Evergreen University, which has gotten a lot of attention, and that just went fully off the rails. Uh, as far as I know, he's, he's, I'm not even sure he, his family is back in town yet, based on safety concerns. And then you have the, the, the Rebecca Tuval incident, and I actually had lunch with her to talk about her experience not that long ago. So it's totally possible that you guys are right and that these are, are individual cases that suggest very little about the rest of what's going on on campuses. But take the first part. How do you think about how Height is describing this? It's a tough question because I think t this is one of those cases where two things can be true. And one other thing, Tamler, I should say that, you see, your, your stepmom is Christina Hoff Summers, who is just yeah. this Basically, as far as I can tell, she has a cult following on, <laughs> on the right, you know, or center right for the way she's brought attention to, to this sort of issue. Yes, especially as it relates to gender. And uh, yeah. And so, yes, this is a debate I have often and certainly every Thanksgiving. You know, I'm pretty close to my stepmother, so we go back and forth. You know, it's funny, like if you listen to us talk about it. I think we can both concede a little bit of, and this is how I feel about height too, you know, I thought the coddling of the American mind was, you know, one of those first sort of overhyped pieces that captured the attention and the imagination of everybody. And I think people aren't good at, at looking at a video like the Christakis video or the Evergreen State video and and, and, and they're bad cases. They're really bad. I mean, there's no denying it. If that was going on in every, or the, or the Charles Murray thing, right? If that was going on in, in the universities, then people would be right that, that, to, to panic about this. But what's, I think, difficult for people to process is day in and day out, how many things happen at the thousands and thousands of universities uh, across the country where there's no stifling of speech, there's no chilling, there's, no, there's none of that. You know, Charles Murray successfully gave that same talk at uh, 100 universities probably before Middlebury. And, you know, Evergreen State is 
a little bit of a whack job uh, liberal arts college to begin with, you know? And for a while, this isn't true anymore, but for a while, anytime there was an article written about this, they, it was Oberlin. Like something happened in Oberlin because that's just what Oberlin is. It's been like that for 50 years and it'll probably be like that for another 50 years. So I think it's important to separate what's wrong, what's legitimately wrong uh, that's going on at, at, at these particular institutions f- for what is going on in, quote unquote, the American university, because I think those two things are different. But, you know, I understand like Height will kind of could concede some of that and say it is at these more privileged private institutions that this is occurring. But that's still a significant worry. And, you know, I have some sympathy with that. Yeah. And and just to, to make clear, I think that that um, there Tamler and I disagree about this often, um, although uh, although we share a lot of the sentiment, uh, you know, I, I think that it's important to separate arguments about frequency with arguments about importance and and i i do think that there is a probably measurable chilling effect in that um that some professors are less willing to say some of the things that they used to say um or they think twice about it and i do think there's probably a measurable difference in the average undergrad um in the way that they think about a lot of these things and then we can separate whether the reaction of panic, which I think Tamler is is responding to, is is the right the right sort of reaction to to the problem as it currently stands, which I I agree is is probably not it it does get overblown and it captures attention. Um, but but I nonetheless do worry ab- about it, and I do think that um, that we are creating um, an environment in which people pause before they say some things. But I, I always try to emphasize that there's there's a way in which a lot of this is actually progress. I, I do want people to pause before they say some things. And so if that's what's called chilling, then then good. I, I, I think I mentioned this on one of our podcasts. I, I don't know if it made the final edit, but um, I did have a, a professor once tell me that he, he really felt like he couldn't tell the same jokes that he used to. And I said, like, what kind of jokes? And then he, he gave me an example, and it was a pretty racist joke. And I was like, good. Was like, in his defense, he wasn't from the U.S., and he didn't think it was a racist joke. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it hasn't stopped Dave from his, you know, constant stream of anti-Semitism. <laughs> so, you know. It, it's, it, it, I, I, feel like, I feel like that's the canary in the coal mine. The minute, I, the, I you know, the minute that, that gets squashed, that I, I will... I will. Uh, announced to the world. <laughs> right. First they came for the anti-Semites. <laughs> That's and right. I, and I did nothing. Uh, I just want to add that I think sometimes, <laughs> like, I think Dave's right that sometimes professors feel like they have to watch what they say. But sometimes that's their fault, not the environment's fault. Like, they've been reading too much of The Atlantic and too much, uh, you know, whatever, uh, the latest column on the Heterodox blog. And... Now they've convinced themselves that they can't say anything that might border on inappropriate. Sometimes you just have to man up and just say the thing that you want to say. And if there's any blowback from that, then you'll deal with it, you know, or or woman up or woman. Up. Yes. Or woman. Sorry. Oh, God. or woman. Can up. you cut that? I'm going to get a big I can't believe that. you. That's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no. I mean, so I do think I was having this talk with a professor. 
um, at a conference and he was like, he said, you know, I was in this faculty meeting and then, you know, an hour later, this faculty member tweeted out something. She didn't use my name, but something that I had said in the faculty meeting. And I was like, so who, so who cares? So what? So maybe she'll tweet out something that you said at a faculty meeting. That doesn't mean you shouldn't say it. That's just life. It's life that when you say something, sometimes people will react in a certain way and you deal with it then. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that there, we have these cases which may, I mean, certainly on your, your account, are, are outlier cases where this stuff just goes completely haywire and you, you have someone's career destroyed or there's at least a, a, just a massive public shaming experience right. that follows in precisely that pattern. If you had a tweet sent from a otherwise private meeting or what was that incident where the, the guy, a guy wore a shirt to a conference and he was just vilified endlessly for the insensitivity of his shirt? Again, we have these cases that get media attention and at minimum advertise how haywire this can go. So it's easy to see how this would propagate back and, and cause everyone to choose their words more carefully. I guess. It's partly, it's easy, but it's not, it's not an excuse. It's not a full excuse, you know? Professors generally are smart enough to understand the difference between a widespread phenomenon and some cases that still, I think, can reasonably be called isolated. And, you know, like anything, like a terrorist attack, you don't want to overreact to it. You don't want to completely take away everybody's freedoms just because there was this one terrorist attack in Orlando. So, you know, that's... I will say that I think it's important to say that in, in, in the, many of the incidents that we've described, these people were treated horribly and unfairly, and, and there's no lack of assholes um, who, who, are, who are causing people um, grief. Um, but I, I always think that this is... The response to me is more important than than the whatever growing number of of undergraduates who are easily offended. I think that this is actually what what do we make of this? What do we do with this? And if it is anything like a trend, if it's not isolated incidents and it is the beginnings of a you know some zeitgeist changing, um, more so than ever, I think that the the role of the professor is. I think we've failed our students if if by the end of our classes for instance um they they still uh don't i think part of the training of say a seminar in mine is for students to come out of there comfortable with expressing opinions and not vilifying others who they disagree with and i think that the response to any claims of alarm and 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 these trends or whatever being dangerous ought to be met with open and clear conversation with our students and not with a response that it's just these these students who are like completely progressive liberals on the left who are ruining things because of postmodernism. Now, I, you know, I would want to talk to that student to, you know, bring them in, let them teach by example what it means to have a, a, a respectful disagreement. The issue with postmodernism connects us to an, another item that many have suggested we talk about. And I, I think this is something that you slammed me for mm -hmm. on one of your podcasts, the conceptual penis hoax. Is there a mess we need to clean up there? I don't, I don't think we slammed you on the podcast about this. Well, what happened is I was among the people who forwarded this hoax. I, 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 I think I, I read a, a piece of their paper on my podcast and then um, 
retweeted it, and then many people have now judged it to have been a false hoax, or at least a misfired hoax. I mean, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I think you guys saw it as an example of skeptics not being nearly skeptical enough because they just practiced their own version of confirmation bias by spreading this thing, which in the end wasn't what it seemed to be. Is that still how you think about it? Because I think the authors both defended themselves, right? And I think even Alan Sokol wrote a a fairly appreciative piece about it, or at least a partially appreciative piece about it. I think what was like, and we had James Lindsay on on our uh, podcast, and we, we talked at length. Of, yeah, we talked at length about it, and I think that that not, not that I'm encouraging you to listen to it, but but at the end of that, I was more disappointed with his response um, than ever. Um, and I and I think it is a case where, yeah, we were taking to task many in the so you know the whatever skeptic community, if you want to if you want to call it that. I don't know how you feel about the label. Um, for falling prey to confirmation bias. And our, I think our point was just generally that this was, you know, published in a really low tier journal after being rejected from a mid tier journal. And I thought, well, what would be evidence of a good scholarship if not being right, rejected yeah, that was a from, point that cut against from it, yeah. journals? From an unranked journal. They were rejected from an unranked gender <laughs> um, studies journal and got it published yeah. in a paper publish, not gender studies journal. It requires no defense of gender. I mean, I think we're all, all on record as saying this is like spectacular bullshit coming out of some of these fields. But it, there's something about the arrogance and the quickness um, of, of mockery. And, and this is something I want to talk to you. This is your podcast, so you, you can direct us. But I did want to talk to you about the, the in, in this broader context of moral persuasion about the role of this mockery. Um, and And I don't think... I've been struck, maybe especially in the last few few weeks or few months, um, as as our audience has grown and we get more and more uh, people interacting with us on Twitter. I don't know if it's just some belief that this is an effective way of convincing others of the truth, um, but I I found the authors, or at least the one author we talked to of the hoax, to be very dismissive and 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 quite quite arrogant about the way that he presented his, his case in a way that Sokol himself was not, right? And I find, for instance, you to be very reasonable when you talk, but you have a wide army of people who aren't that way. And so I, I don't know how you feel about when you see, you probably get so many tweets that it's hard to keep up, but, but when you see people right. who sort of on your behalf are acting in ways that I don't think that you would ever act. There are really two topics here. One, one is whether mockery is ever useful and, and, and persuasive to the people you're mocking, or whether I think, I think you guys have even more global doubts about whether just hard criticism is ever persuasive to the people you're criticizing, whether a, a, a frontal assault, atheist style on religious faith ever wins hearts and minds. I think that's something that at least Tamler has doubted in the past. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by frontal assault, but... Then there's the issue of, of how one's fans or, or listeners or readers, in, in my case, re- represent me in how they respond to, to people who criticize me or, or, or my podcast guests. And on that second point, I, it, for me, it's very clear, and I, I've with some frequency, I mean, I can't keep doing this, but with some frequency, I admonish my listeners not to be jerks. And I've said on a few podcasts, listen, you're doing me no favors. No matter how much you hate 
what someone said on my podcast, no matter how wrong you think they are, you're not doing me any favors if you now just flame them on social media. I don't want a person's experience coming on the podcast to be that that was the worst thing they ever did in their lives because of how they were treated by by a, a fairly la large audience. In fact, I, I want it to be the opposite. I want everything that comes their way to be really smart and civil, no matter how hard-hitting it actually is, or no matter how critical it is of their position, it has to be civil and relevant. And so, yeah, I'm fairly clear about how I wish people would represent my audience. Right. But, I, you know, I have very little control over what people actually do apart from saying things like that periodically. I guess the, so, I mean, there's, right, you don't have control over what the people who are fans of yours do and all you can do is model good behavior you know which i think you did i mean you did in the the scott adams you know uh almost to the point where it was heroic <laughs> the, the degree to which we'll see if i can still model it and now that we talk about yeah, it but, uh, but so there's some Christakis level patience. But, I, but I, I, the, the question that Dave alluded to before about whether mockery is an effective tactic to change people's minds, I think is a, you know, it's something that I think skeptics, skeptics and sometimes atheists, um, I, I, I guess maybe I just disagree with them because I don't have any great evidence on whether mockery changes minds or not. Certainly in my experience, mocking somebody, calling them stupid, calling them, you know, obviously irrational or whatever, is not a, it just makes people more defensive. It makes people dig their heels in more. And the, the way I think to, to change minds is to be respectful of their opinion and to really try to, you know, see the best side of it as, as and 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 to engage with it even if you find it um indefensible on on some level just as a purely practical instrumental goal of changing somebody's mind you know in my experience as someone who's no stranger to mockery that's not what I want to trot it out for mockery is fun can be funny it can get the people who already agree with you to agree with you more and to be more proud of themselves for being on the right side of the view, but it doesn't change the minds of the people that you're mocking. I would just say that that assumption is pretty readily disconfirmable. I mean, it doesn't change some people's minds. I'll grant you that. It might not, it might not even change most minds, and, and most minds, depending on what the belief system is, might just not be available for change, right? So the, you, there's nothing you're going to say on a podcast or in a book, however well-tempered, that's going to change the mind of a, you know, a real jihadist or get him to question his, his faith. But you know, I, I've been amazed to learn that some of the most hard-hitting stuff I've put out there, you know, st the stuff I've said about Islam and the end of faith or in various YouTube videos, has actually penetrated and reached even totally devout conservative people in, in communities in Pakistan, right, Who, where the people are, you know, are now closet atheists, right, based on what 
I or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens have said about their religion. And obviously that's not, those people themselves must be outliers, but you have to picture people at every point on the spectrum of credulity with respect to any ideology. And so there's there are the people who are, you know, fundamentalists and have never questioned the faith. And there are people who are halfway between that and being, you know, fairly just nominal adherents of the faith. And they can be tipped in either direction. And if they see something very hard hitting, but also obviously well thought out, directed at this thing that they have been told is so important and so beyond doubting, you don't know how many of those people you capture. And I, I can just say that, you know, have, having done this for more than a decade, there's personally a kind of an endless stream of confirmation that minds get changed through confrontation with evidence and argument, however actually disrespectful and, and hard-hitting. And I, I maybe some there were some distinctions that came to mind as as we continue to talk about this, and and one is that 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 I don't at least what I know of the discussions that you've had haven't struck me as mockery, um, and I find even even in instances of strong disagreement, I don't think that you are disrespectful, but but I think. That the question of of whether mockery is effective may be just the wrong way for me to think about it, because it may very well be that you change some minds through mockery, but that that isn't the way that I want to to do it. And maybe there are some tactics that just are so. I mean, there are some issues that are so important that you you might adopt a by any means necessary approach. But I I find it distasteful and and disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how we define mockery, but so for instance, the way I speak about Trump. Right. Well, this is not everyone's cup of tea. I mean, obviously, Trump supporters who are totally incorrigible hate what I say about Trump, and they, they must be unreachable. But I, th- I got to think, even there, it reaches somebody. And and on certain points, there is just no other way to say it. I mean, to fail to convey the the feeling of moral opprobrium that that seems to me just central to the response I'm having to Trump. Yeah. I mean, to leave, to leave that off the table is to actually not communicate what I think about Trump and what I, ha- what I feel everyone has good reason to believe about him. So I guess the, the, the respect side comes in where I can give a sympathetic construal of why someone didn't see it that way at first or maybe even doesn't see it that way now. And I can certainly sympathize with someone who hated Clinton and felt, for their own reasons, that Trump was probably a better choice. There's definitely a, a, a discussion to be had that they can dignify the other side. And I, you know, I spent a whole podcast running down Clinton with, with Andrew Sullivan, so I, I'm, I'm sympathetic with the other side. But to actually just focus on a specific example like Trump and Trump University, as I did with Scott Adams, and to not express just how despicable that was and how despicable it is not to find it despicable now. I was somewhat hamstrung in my conversation with Scott because I have to play host and debate partner, but kind of the host has to win. At least I'm using it as a heuristic now that the host has to win in those moments and and keep it it civil at, at, at all costs. But to give him a pass on that, I feel is a moral failing in itself and an intellectual one. So, and to not communicate that is, is dishonest. 
I guess um, what you did with Scott Adams is, as I see it, different. You weren't mocking him. You weren't. I, I'm not saying you shouldn't express your feelings or you should sugarcoat how you feel and what you believe about Donald Trump. But when you look at what you did with Scott Adams, you were very deliberately trying to see his perspective, trying to understand why he was defending the positions that he was defending. And uh, I don't know, like I see that more as an example, even though he wasn't going to be persuaded either way. I see that as an example of more what I'm talking about than what you're talking about. And I think this is what doesn't happen with Trump, with liberals and Trump voters is they are dismissed in like the, the basket of deplorables. They're just dismissed as this monolithic group of racist idiots who vote against their own interests constantly. And just to be clear, I'm highlighting not what I said to Scott or about Scott, but what I say about Trump. There's no way to sugarcoat it. I am being as disrespectful as you can possibly be about Trump. So imagine what I would have to say to Trump to his face if I ever met him to square with what I've said. I'm talking about a Trump voter and trying to convince a Trump voter to change their mind. Say we get to the next election time and you're canvassing with a Trump voter. The way to to change their mind both as a party and as an individual person isn't going to be, I don't think, to make fun of them because that's what was tried. And that's what seemed like almost a galvanizing, uh, it had a kind of a galvanizing effect to the voters. But what do you think of something like the SNL sketches against Trump and, and Sean Spicer? Yeah. So I was going to, this, this is what I was, I was going to get to to an, the, another distinction about about humor because th there is it's not a there's not a clear line, and and all I can do I think is point to the sort of attitude that somebody holds toward another human being, um, where, where humor is actually a great way to satirize and to condemn. And by the way, I also agree with you that what I'm not saying is that there are, aren't cases of just sheer moral condemnation, that we shouldn't pull our punches. Um, we should be very, very comfortable to say, I, I agree with you. I think Trump is somebody who I, I wouldn't have anything good to say about him. And I think so much of what he's doing is wrong and, and setting the wrong example. And with humor, I, I think humor, there there is often a line there. And I've, I find that I can distinguish the kind of humor that I, I think is good satire for me in my reaction from stuff that just gets nasty in some way in the tone with which it's being done. And, and I, think, I think the power of humor is that it, it tells a truth in a way that disarms people. It doesn't bring their walls up. Not always, but, but it has the power to do that. Right. I think I've gotten so much more insight from people like Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K. because they tell some pretty difficult truths in, in a funny way. It can, I think, though, that it can go, it, it can get to a, a mean spirit. And then, and then I just don't like it as much. But I, 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 I don't like that feeling that, that somebody's disrespecting. And, and I think when I said mockery, for instance, what I meant was somebody who is unwilling to engage. Um, and, and I found, 
I think in our James Lindsay interview about the hoax, I found an unwillingness to engage or a, just a stopping point at their willingness to to talk about opposing views that that is what distressed me or what what bothered me i guess i haven't listened to that so i'll have to yeah do that so let's open it up to this larger issue of moral persuasion and this is this follows rather directly from what scott adams was claiming on my podcast this that trump is this brilliant persuader and that persuasion is really not about facts and and needn't be needn't be about facts i mean it's, it's not it's not a bad thing that it's not about facts this is one thing that again in my role as host i couldn't fully communicate how reprehensible i feel this position <laughs> is and i mean, i'm not saying anything about scott that i wouldn't say to him it's just it's just hard to kind of split the baby in real time when you're <laughs> on your own show and i say this now fully aware that it will get back to scott but i just feel like this he seemed totally comfortable in fact he seemed fairly jubilant about caring not about what is true but about what people can be led to believe it just matters what people can be led to believe. Don't you understand, Sam? That's the game we're all playing. That's what this life is about. It's about persuading people to get what you want out of life. And Trump is great at that. And that, as a kind of the, the linchpin of an ethical worldview, there's so much wrong. I mean, where do I start? That everything is wrong with that. As a scientist, as a philosopher, as a journalist, as a compassionate person who just wants to have his or her beliefs track reality. I mean, whoever you are you know, attempting to build a, a better society, I don't see how you can be comfortable with that as your, your starting point. And yet, I mean, he does have a point. I mean, the, the fact that, I mean, well, I mean, one thing that was astonishing after our podcast was to see how differently our two respective audiences perceived it. I mean, my audience vilified him and his audience vilified me. And I mean, it was, it was clear that they thought he had destroyed me. What an embarrassment. You know, uh, it was like career suicide for me to have someone as brilliant and as persuasive as Scott on my <laughs> podcast to just, you know, do the Jedi mind trick on me. By the way, we've had some of your followers uh, listen to our, our long podcast on free will and say, Sam destroyed you guys. And I always l sort of laugh because I'm like, I, you know, I don't think that the destruction. But, of but I, I did destroy you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, you know, I don't I think that they that that, <laughs> that was that was me. I have another account. <laughs> you have like an account with six followers. The Scott Adams interview, it's a it's a. It's it's a funny thing to listen to. You get kind of disoriented and 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 there was a kind of postmodern feel to it. There was a kind of postmodern critical theory kind of perspective that he seemed to be inhabiting with facts and 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 reason-based arguments or at least sort of, you know, objective reason based arguments that could be independently evaluated just didn't play the role for him that it played that it plays for you and that it's you know mostly we think plays for for all of us and there was a meta level as trying to, when you know when you two would debate say the Russia investigation or climate change and he would say well you know the Paris deal was a hoax and you weren't but Trump said climate science was a hoax. And, you know, all of a sudden they're, they we're shifting terrain. 
And then you start to wonder, is Scott Adams treating this very debate as something to be like a, a vehicle for persuasion? Not of you. He probably knew that you weren't going to be persuaded. But So he's not trying to win the argument in the, or the debate in the sense that we understand that. He's trying to do what he says Trump is a master at doing, which is persuade people to appreciate Trump or to find something in him that they haven't found before. And then it was like, now I don't, it's like, how do you assess this, uh, this argument at all if he's not even trying to win the argument as I understand winning arguments, you know? No, I think that's true. I think he's very sincere about his insincerity. I think he's got, he's got this bad faith structure to his game and he's fine with that. And I feel that there is an immense number of, of intellectual and ethical problems that follow from that. And, and we couldn't fully get into it, but it, it's a, I do find it very frustrating. But in his defense, the aftermath and just everything we see around us proves at least one part of his thesis, the two movies analogy. Our audiences, my audience and, and Adams's audience are we're clearly watching different movies of that podcast and perceived it totally differently. And the question of, of moral persuasion, how do you bridge that gulf? Honestly, I'm at a loss when you can't get facts that would be morally salient in, in another context to matter to someone for the purpose of a political discussion. I mean, like when, when I, one point I made with him, which, to which he didn't have a rebuttal, I mean, I think he basically agreed with me. You know, I said, listen, if, if I did any one of these things that I just named, that, that, that you're not disputing Trump has done, if I did any one of these things, it would be the end of me and for good reason. I mean, you would not come on this podcast if you had heard that I have a, had a Trump university in my backstory or if I had been, you know, barging into the dressing rooms of, of the beauty pageant contestants under my sway, or I mean, any any of these things, and you know, you would rightly recognize that I'm a schmuck who shouldn't be taken seriously. He does sort of split the difference here. And in other moments, he says, "Well, who am I to judge any of that?" And I'm not the Pope. And I, you know, when he's talking about Trump, he he's or he, or he says, "Oh, well, he's lived more publicly than you." Sort of implying that who knows? Yeah, if who you knows what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and and I, I do wonder about someone who feels that he is in no position to judge the litany of abuses to morality and reason we see just pouring out of Trump's life. I think his better argument was that you shouldn't, like, we're not hiring him to model, to be a model citizen good behavior, where it's like you want that dirty lawyer, or as Dave would say, the Jew lawyer, to win your case for you. God, you don't, character assassination. You don't want the lawyer that's the most upstanding citizen when you're in a battle, you know, for your, you know, whether you're going to go to prison or not or for a lot of money. There's so much to, to disagree uh, with him about. And, but I'll tell you what I found the most distressing. And, and, and again, I actually found him to be uh, like an interesting respectful dude when he was discussing so this is this but but i uh, but i get i reserve the right as sam you were saying before to just fundamentally disagree with him and what i found the most distressing 
in his whole in the whole interview was as you point out the amorality of his of his arguments but another one just the insistence on praising trump for his persuasive powers and an unwillingness <laughs> right. to talk about what he was persuading people about that, that he was avoiding any discussion of content so so it's fine if you want getting, to getting what he wants and that's an intrinsic good in, in, intrinsic good and it, it made me think you know for some people this is an insult some people it might be a compliment but but i it, it was very Anne randish and i was uh, I, I i was struck by that being a, a a good in and of itself that that sort of you know we've reached 33rd level persuasive powers and so you got to admire the guy but if your persuasive powers are being used to not care about the 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 future of the environment um or or to to discriminate against people or whatever um how how is that a good i mean but you couldn't get him to discuss that and it was always bringing it back to well this is just part of his masterful game um which is like great you might be a really really great marksman but if you're shooting people i don't like you and, and I, at this point, he would tell me, well, the, I failed because of my uh, use of analogy. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I think I, I, I found it, when it's all said and done, I found it almost monstrous to, to think of a president and endorsing him for, for doing that, for, for being good at that. Yeah, well, yeah, also not to see the cost. Forget about what he's persuading people toward. The fact of just having this style of communication that is so, so dishonest that more or less there's just every assumption now is that there's something false in what he said. Even if you're his fan, you have to bracket everything he says with this basic uncertainty about whether he means it and the cost of, of, of that to our society and to our politics. The downside of that is, is so obvious, but, you know, he clearly doesn't care about it. Your question about, you know, there are these two movies and the movies seem to be operating according to different principles, too, just in terms of what counts, you know, if the whole uh, the media takes Trump literally, but not seriously, people take Trump seriously, not literally. And it's like, and this, and I guess that serious part on the Trump voters is that idea of kind of emotional trust, or um, uh, the you know they they trust him emotionally, and so when they when he goes off on some bullshit tweet storm, they know it's bullshit. They know he's lying, but he has their emotional trust. I mean, I I think that there is something right about that, at least as a descriptive explanation. For what's going on, and I actually think that's mostly untrue. I mean, I, I think I want to call bullshit on that claim too. I mean, for instance, when Trump gets up there and says, "You know, my inauguration crowd was bigger than any that had ever been seen," I think most of his fans think that's true when he says it, and they think it's the fake news media out to get him that is disputing it. And if they ever come around to being convinced by the photos, which, you know, half of them probably think are doctored, they think, well, who gives a shit? You know, he's great anyway. And so it's like there's... But why do they say he's great anyway? Because they trust him. They trust him. He's a fighter. He's a businessman. He's going to fight for their... The way Scott views him is a very 
unusual way of viewing him. I think people are, they think everyone's out to get him so that most of the criticism about him and most of the fact-checking has to be purely malicious, and most of that is, is just a tissue of lies and conspiracy theories, and there's probably nothing untoward happening with Russia. And, you know, he's, he, he's almost certainly this really good guy who's just getting hammered by the, the you know, left-wing elite. But then when, it, when any one piece of this shifts into the certainty column where, okay, no, Trump clearly was lying there, then they they have a, a piece of the Scott Adams view, which is, well, who cares? He's just, you know, that's just for effect or that's, he, that, that, that works. He did it because it works. Get used to it. But for the most part, I don't think they're, they're, that's not their first perception. The first perception is he's just under attack. There's a siege. And it's, it's driven not by how far from normal and ethical and professional and competent he is, it's driven based on just pure partisan rancor. I mean, people like me are just unhappy to have lost an election. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think you're, you're right about that. I, I, I guess I didn't want to build too much on the psychology of the Trump voter as much as in terms of getting people in that movie to sort of be able to talk and debate. Uh, there is something in this idea of building emotional trust, and one of the one of the reasons why the the fake news, um, you know, liberal skewed, biased media, uh, a, you know, all those charges seem so effective. They they're very effective on convincing Trump voters that he's being treated unfairly, as he loves to say, is because there is no trust right now um, for those kinds of institutions, you know, the establishment Republicans, the establishment Democrats, and, and the news media in general. And so to, you know, that's the, I think the work that has to be done is building some of that trust back, because without that, there's no terrain to persuade people to revise their opinion of, of a man that they've put a lot of stake in. A lot of these voters, they it's they they are really motivated to not look like they got played for a sucker, to not look like they've been conned, and so only somebody who they have a tremendous amount of trust in, and and also I think some some degree of respect for, is going to be able to make progress in in changing their minds about that because there's a lot of biases. I think I, I think you're being I, I don't I don't think that there is an that the liberal media has eroded trust and that this is why the people um, went for Trump. I think it's a much simpler story, which is he was saying shit a lot of people wanted to hear. They were voting in their self-interest for Trump because they really believed it. And one way to take Scott Adams view is and I agree with both of you. I don't think this that Scott Adams represents in any way the average Trump supporter. I think one way in which I think he's right is that Trump has persuaded a substantial portion of people that he is to be trusted. And I think that that is despite all of the evidence that he is not to be trusted. And so you say to yourself, well, how can people trust him despite all of this evidence that he's a liar, that he makes decisions based on self-interest, not even on principle? And I think it's because he has said a few things that people really, really wanted to hear. 
And I don't think it's the liberal media has eroded trust and it needs to build it back up. I think it's just totally directional bias. Well, the thing is, though, it, it has, I mean, I can attest to the failings of the liberal media or the, the, the mainstream media on certain topics that are so reliable that I, I do have a window into how a right-wing Fox and Breitbart fan could view the editorial page of the New York Times or even, even just the, the news pages, because I've seen them commit errors of fact or, or to shade their discussion of facts so reliably on certain topics. I mean, the topics of, you know, the, the link between Islam and terrorism is one where I, I can just guarantee you I will find in an article some way in which political correctness is distorting the presentation of, of stark facts. There are whole articles in places like the New York Times talking about terrorist suicide bombings as though the motive were a, a mystery that is bound to remain impenetrable till the end of time. And there's no mention of Islam. There's no mention of religion. There's just that you have generic words like extremism. And all of this, to someone who's been paying attention to this problem and is, is worried about the, the spread of specific ideas relative to jihadism, it's a very fishy way to describe what's going on. And so it is with something like gun control and gun safety. I mean, there'll be a shooting at, at a school, and you'll have the, the response in the New York Times, and you'll just see, you'll, you'll see positions being articulated by people who know nothing about guns, who have never shot a gun, who don't, who get everything wrong. I mean, the names are wrong. I mean, we hear them on CNN talking about guns. They pronounce the names of gun manufacturers wrong. I mean, it's just the, the level of cluelessness is so obvious. And so I can see that it's possible that even in the valid reaction to Trump, there's something demeaning about having to respond or feeling that you have to respond again and again and again to Trump's dishonesty and indiscretions because every time you do it, you are you're running the, the risk of making a, a, an error yourself, however small, which seems to put you on all fours with Breitbart or with, or with uh, Trump himself, <laughs> or it's just that there's something, something that erodes your credibility by just taking the time to be endlessly criticizing someone like this for, uh, for the same points. And, and so you, when you look at the New York Times now, there are days where the whole paper looks like the opinion page because they have to take a position against this guy. Yeah, it's... it's... It's a horrible state of affairs. I, I, I hate life. Um, but, I, but I will say this. I think you're giving too much credit to, um, to the truth-seeking nature of people. I, I don't at all disagree that there's— Well, that's, that's Adams's point. I mean, to, in, in defense of Adams, that's, exact, that's exactly what he would want to say. Well, I mean, but I think he's wrong in that this is a—I <laughs> mean, I think everybody should be truth-seeking. I think people are wrong to take Trump at face value and believe him. But— so I don't, I think, yeah, he's totally wrong about, about the moral virtue in this. But I think that when people see an article on gun control in the New York Times and they disagree with it, this, I don't think that their trust in the factual, I don't think these people are like, well, look at the most recent statistics and I can show you where you're wrong. I think they're like, I, I like guns and New York Times doesn't. So fuck you guys. 
And that to me is not erosion of trust. That is just directional bias on all parts, on all parts. Some people can recognize bullshit when they see it. And if you're a big pro gun person and you see the position being misrepresented, you'll recognize that and that will piss you off. And rightly so, you know. Yeah, but those same people will have it, it's not as if they're more sensitive to facts or something. Right. So those same people, I mean, this is the whole point of motivated reasoning when they when you spot when you spot an argument that you don't like and then you dig into it, then you're going to find evidence. And, and maybe you can say, well, in your time's biased. But when when they say something that is that that is consistent with with your belief, you, you won't do any you know, you, you'll just be like, yeah, that's right. But I, so I don't think that. I mean, I think that this is something that's been going on forever with the media and the way that people process information. I don't think it's anything that has eroded in the the trust of the people who once thought the New York Times could give them genuinely unbiased facts about gun control. And now they can't. And so I'm going to vote for Trump. I think it's just more way more gut reaction than that. But so what do you do with the this underlying claim, which you, you did just echo, that people are not as truth seeking as they should be or that I think they they could be I'm de- depressed about it Sam I mean I think that this is actually one of the things that I that I want to talk about is at what point when talking about moral persuasion right so I feel like I've fought the good fight in in discussing things and I'm willing to keep fighting it for that percentage of people so sometimes I look at my classroom and I say if maybe I can get 5 people to reason a bit more out of out of 50 then I'll consider this a victory but one of the things that that maybe both of you can can give me your opinion on is at what point I've I've realized I think maybe it's maturity and maybe it's just growing impatience that there is a stop rule at, at some point before turning into mockery I want to just stop engaging because it won't be worth my time. There are people I know who I know won't be convinced and they're not worth my you know despite my <laughs> my being being reactive on Twitter to some trolls. Um, I I feel like well. M- Maybe I just need to be more pessimistic about human nature and not even engage them. Uh, but, but then there's this set of people who are, you know, who it, there is something you could do to bring them around. They're not currently around. And there's a set of people you could, you know, move closer to. And, uh, and this is, you know, we've seen this on the podcast. People email us all the time and said, you actually changed my mind about this issue, that issue. Um, and I don't know, that's what, you know, I agree that there's plenty of, plenty of room for pessimism on this question, but certainly not despair. Well, so David, I I don't know how close you are to this research, but there certainly is some scientific research on persuasion and just how hard it is to change people's minds and things like the backfire effect and, you know, all the biases that Kahneman and Tversky have have brought to the world's attention. If someone wanted to create a fully scientific approach or an approach that's grounded in the best research now to changing minds, do you know what that would look like? I mean, because there are these perverse things, like if I tell you something that is not true, there's this, you know, I don't know how well replicated this has been. Again, we have this replication problem, too, with some of these results. But, you know, like the, there's the illusory truth effect, where if I tell if you, if your first hearing of something is only in the context of hearing that, it, in fact, it's not true, a disproportionate number of people will remember it as being true merely for having heard it. So 
How do we hack our, our minds based on current science? It's funny because the, um, I'm currently in Toronto, and one of the things that I do on the side is this consulting uh, work where we try to apply the science to, to changing consumer behavior. And, and I'm often have to struggle with, you know, there are the, there are the ways in which you can try to change someone's mind that, um, that I think are, are good ways, like looking, trying to find the ways in which people will be more willing to listen to and, and grok sort of an argument that is opposed to their, their initial argument. Um, and then there are the ways that are, say, like the dumber ways, the, 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 the ways that don't require reasoning that are just sort of like, say, say a, an emotionally uh, distressing image in order to get you to stop smoking or something like that. And so I always, um, and even my own disgust, uh, research on disgust, I've had liberals ask me, how can I use disgust to make people more, um, more in line with liberal ethics instead of with conservative ones? And I always say, I, gotta, it's not, I don't think that's the way we should be using it. Um, but the question of how to get people's uh, mind change, especially in the moral domain, it, it's a, t it's a tough one. And, and I've, I've vacillated between sort of downright despair and just regular pessimism. Um, but I do think that the, the best way is in the context of relationships and respectful, friendly relationships. And so I, I'll say it this way, John Haidt, I think was on, is on to something. Um, when he talks about the need to build relationships, have social relationships in order to make some of this stuff actually work. And you brought up gun control earlier, and I'll use an example from my own life. Um, I was, I'm, I'm fairly liberal, right? Um, and I, it, perhaps even in my uh, sort of becoming a psychologist, I was extra liberalized. And when I went to grad school, I took a course in normative ethics from a philosopher. And he, he turned out he was a gun owner and had very, very specific libertarian views on gun ownership. And I was, I had just knee-jerk reaction against this. Um, I thought, this is horrible. How can you promote this? And, you know, citing studies about the mere presence of guns making people more violent. And because I became his friend and because I respected him in all sort of other ways in which he had demonstrated to me that he was a reasonable person, I was left with, well, what if? It's weird that a reasonable person believes something about this that's so contrary to, to my view. And he exposed me to literature and I started reading and I actually changed my mind um, about, at the very least, now I, I try to look at objective evidence, which as you say is very hard to get. But it was only in that context, because I think that if anybody else had just told me that I was an idiot for believing what I believed, I would just double down. And I think that it's a really high bar but it's the one that seems to work. It's people from your group who you respect, who you can say to yourself, that's weird that I agree with this person about so much, but in this case, what is there? What is it that's there? And Twitter is horrible. At, <laughs> you know, Twitter is the opposite. Um, most ways that we have of communicating that are new are, are not that. This is why Trump is a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, his success is a bit of a mystery. And again, this is something that does fall into, into line with Adams's account, that he has something miraculous going on with him, because you have the, the leading lights of the Republican Party, right? Like all the journalists and all the opinion people, I mean, certainly the smartest ones, I mean, these were all never Trumpers. 
the National Review, the, the magazine itself came out against him, right? So you have people within their group saying, okay, listen, we all have, we hate Clinton as much as you do, but this guy is a monster. And it, it, it means nothing. It, it apparently means nothing to the rest of the Republican base. So it's, maybe that was just the establishment Republicans were viewed not as insiders, but as outsiders. I mean, they're just more elitists. So they're, they're the same thing as Clinton. They're all at Davos together, eating canapes, and they're, they're all the, part of the problem. And Trump is the middle finger raised in the direction of that problem. I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence that, yeah, they were as disgusted with the mainstream establishment Republican Party, not as they were with Hillary. That was a different level. But, you know, that they didn't trust them and they still don't trust them. Um, and Trump is the first, I think, the first president or candidate that they felt in a while was on their side. They thought both parties had sort of. But how is he one of them? <laughs> I, I when you look, yeah. look, I mean, no, look I mean, at photos of his apartment, it's mind yeah. I mean, I mean, this is this is what's insane. Yeah, look at photos of his apartment. I mean, he, this has been described as Bathist chic. It literally looks like one of Saddam Hussein's imperial palaces. Yeah, what's with what's with gilded stuff that that is what is tracked by that aesthetic preference that includes Donald Trump and Saddam Hussein? Well, I mean, so I think what it, like the best thing that somebody said about that was even though he's so rich and he's so clearly not a, like a, a working class person in Ohio, he he gets sort of mocked and dismissed and made fun of like them. And so, you know, and even for his garish, tasteless style, you know, <laughs> like that. Uh, so I, I saw, heard some interview, and I don't remember where this is from, where when the people, the, he said, when the people are insulting Trump and mocking him and calling him an idiot, and he's like, it's like they're saying that about me. That was just a voter. And, and it wasn't, like, so it was the, the, same, the same people that they think look down on them also look down on Trump. Right. And I, and I guess his garishness is still aspirational for some people. I mean, I, I think I said at one point, and this no doubt offended somebody, that Trump is, is a poor person's idea of a rich person. This is what it looks like to make it, right? You know, um, so I... I'm, I may be more cynical or maybe more liberal, but I, I think that there's a, a straightforward story about how Trump succeeded, in, in, and it was his willingness to say things that were just under the surface of many Americans. And not coincidentally, these Americans are just the ones who know how to vote and are willing to go out and vote. There's no, they're not disenfranchised. They're just disillusioned. I think I said this at some point in our podcast. It, there was a guy who came on and said, Let's get rid of, of Mexicans and Muslims and let's uh, and black people are getting a little uppity and women are just complaining about stuff. And at the risk of sounding crass, I think that's the message that resonated with a large base. Now, why do people feel that way? You know, I think we could talk about that. But I think that's what what got I mean, remember, he barely won. Right. So so all he had to do was get I mean, how many Trumps like I don't know how many Trump supporters, you know, but the ones that that I know were like just in general um, white dudes who kind of didn't like Mexican people taking all the jobs, you know? And, and I got to call a spade a spade. Like, that's what I saw. 
I said this before on the podcast. I mean, it's one sign of what a bubble I'm in that I, of all the people I know, I think there's only there are only two people who I am reasonably sure voted for Trump. I mean, this is of like all the people. I, if if my life depended on it, I had to physically find <laughs> a Trump person. You know, I know maybe it's a thousand people or so that, that in my contact list, right? You just go to La Jolla, and uh, <laughs> what? And one is Peter Thiel. So it's like I have to reach to Peter Thiel to find someone who's so representative in my world. The man, the person who cut my exactly. hair. I, I kind of feel like we shouldn't talk, keep talking about Trump, but the person who I'd been going to to cut my hair for a really long time. I found out after the election had voted for Trump and fairly enthusiastically. And she was not what Dave is describing. She was of Mexican descent herself. She uh, had, you know, she's been uh, at war with her very religious uh, in-laws over custody for her son. So she had, they live in East Texas. And and so she's no friend to religion. She's very uh, pro-LGBT. And so, I mean, I think there's just so many different reasons. There's some element that's what, that, that's what Dave uh, is talking about. But I think it's dismissive to uh, attribute that to, a lot, to another also significant percentage of Trump voters. But to broaden it, you know... When you're talking about moral persuasion and how hard it is because everyone's vulnerable to all these biases, and it can start to feel like you're kind of starting from the assumption that you have the right view, and the challenge is how to get everybody to kind of agree with you because you're right, and and I don't mean you too, like this is this is sort of the premise of of these discussions sometimes. And I think so, a lot of times we are not sufficiently reflective about our own biases and the ways in which we're vulnerable to the same kinds of things that provide barriers to convincing other people. And, and that, I guess that's a separate issue, but it's, I think, one that is important if, to sort of demonstrate if you want to bring other people around to your side is to show that you are sufficiently reflective about your own views. That you're sensitive to, yeah. That's obviously valid for debating any topic, except there are clear cases where you know you're right, and the burden really is upon you to prove it, right? Like you're trying to get through to somebody who, you know, who you'd bet your life is wrong here or is not seeing something. This, is, this happens in the intellectual sphere when you're, you're just trying to get someone to understand you know, probability or anything that you may have well in hand and they don't. But I think it also is true of certain moral things. Like, the, like the, there's a moral cost that the other person is not recognizing and you are sure this is something that has, that should be recognized and you're just, you're trying to go to the mat for it and you can't pretend to be unsure of your position there. Maybe you're saying that you should, you should, have a kind of pretense of not being sure as a way of using more honey than vinegar for the purpose of persuading. Is that as a strategy as opposed to your actual epistemological view? I mean, you're right that there are some cases like that, but I don't know how great we are at identifying which are those cases and which are the ones that we actually are getting a little, you know, we are a little too confident in our opinions. 
one way of reading what what Tamler's saying is is not that you have to be unsure about uh, about your own position in this case, but but maybe and this this ties into what I was saying about having sort of knowing somebody um, over time and realizing what kind of person they are, um, where you can it means a lot. And, and one of the reasons that, if you'll recall, we had you on on our seventy fifth episode, and we were, we we had a bunch of people on to talk about what they had changed their minds about. I think it's important to be open about those instances where you can where you can show people that you you have been sensitive to to truth and and you have changed your mind. I can't remember what I changed my mind about. <laughs> I might, have, I might have changed it back in the meantime. Uh, it was about AI, actually. Something another thing we've oh, gotten requested. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm still there. Yeah, and and still worried. I got actually shit for for in real time I changed my mind from that conversation with you and somebody was like I can't believe you changed your mind so quickly and you know like somehow I had laid down um and I was like well, no I just was convinced <laughs> like that that happens I it didn't maybe it didn't take much but but uh but that conversation d- did convince me to to be worried in a way that I hadn't been worried and so, so showing people that you're capable of that, and 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 the truth is to always. I think I'm all, all constantly worried that I'm that I am part of the problem. Not constantly, not constantly enough, but but have to remind myself that that um, that hey, if I if I haven't really taken a critical look at my own views in a while, um, that I'm not falling into that. Yeah, one one thing I think, Adams, I just feel a duty to give the most charitable spin on his side here, which I, I'm pretty sure he would agree with, he would say that that is a genuine weakness and, and a failing in a persuader. I mean, for you to be willing to second guess yourself in that way, it's like one of Trump's strength is that he never does that. There's just no way he's ever going to conform to a criticism of him or express any kind of self-doubt. It may in fact be true that that style of what is, from our point of view, a total lack of self-awareness, that that actually wins fully half of any audience you're going to be in front of. You're already ahead of whoever you're dealing with if you are the guy who cannot be embarrassed about anything. And will never admit that you're mistaken or that, and will never apologize. Yeah, that that's, it's, it. I totally, you know, I got that from, from Scott Adams. And when he said that very thing, I was like, well, then I, I just have a very different idea about what it means to, to, to be a person of moral character. Like, I don't want, I mean, maybe I'm with a 50% that doesn't want that. Um, I agree. You know, there's a way in which, yeah, sure. Like you're, you're a sales person and you, you're, you're working hard to get the best price, you know, or whatever. Um, then fine. Like there's, there's a pragmatic way in which that might work for some substantial portion of the people. I just don't want, I don't want to inhabit the, a world in which that is what we value morally. I'm a little skeptical that that is as effective a technique, um, or even among his Trump's yeah. more effective yeah, me too. I mean... um, techniques. And I don't know what the evidence is on that. So Sam, you said earlier that you feel like sometimes that you're certain about a moral truth. Um, so that sort of that was interesting to me that you could be certain about some moral truth or moral fact, and your goal now is to convince other people to agree with you on that. Like, so what? Like, how big is that category? Would something like abortion 
you know, the stance to be pro-choice or pro-life, is that one that you would, that, that would be in the category or in the set of things that you think you're certain about? At the extreme ends of the, the continuum, yes. But it, I, I would admit that drawing the line in, in gestation is difficult and, and is bound to seem arbitrary and, until all the facts are in. And maybe even when all the facts are in, it'll seem arbitrary. It's, like, it's sort of like when you give someone a driver's license, you know, what, is, what's the right age? But if you're going to say, is it okay to allow a woman to have an abortion when the fetus is, or the embryo is two days old, or is that the murder of a precious soul that has to be protected the way a a fully developed human being would? That strikes me as absolutely clear cut. Um, Now, whether you're talking about, when you're get me into the second trimester, well, then all of my concern about harming a, a sentient being kicks in. But so that like, but so that's a, a local case. But the, the more general case is, I, I think that if what you are concerned about morally doesn't have to do with the actual or potential well-being of conscious creatures somewhere, sometime, if it's something else, right, that doesn't map on to the experience of beings that can suffer, well, then it's a, a pseudo-moral concern. I mean, then, then it's, you're making a category error or, you know, you, you care about something that you don't, you, you shouldn't care about. And But a two-month embryo or even a one-month embryo has a potential for well-being. Yeah. So that, but so in, in the case of a, a two-day-old embryo, right, I'm making it super clear, I, I think the, the interests of the mother and the kind of life she wants to live, her actual life, and the kind of life she thinks she can provide for this child that she doesn't want, uh, if forced to have it. I mean, you can stack the deck. I mean, you can make you can, you can make you can make the the case for abortion as clear or as muddy as you want. And I agree that on both extremes, it can be very very clear or very very muddy. But if you if you give me someone who's we find out she's pregnant very early, and she really doesn't want the baby, I mean, it'll make it more extreme. She was raped, you know, by her stepfather, right? Forcing her to bring this baby to term, I think that's you know clearly wrong, given the the amount of misery you're imposing on this actual woman. But I think to connect this to another question, existential risk, I think, is a real ethical topic worth talking about. And there you are talking about the interests of uncreated people, right? It's like, why would it be a bad thing if you know the lights went out on our species, you know, painlessly all at once tonight? And there were no more people. What's the loss? None of us would suffer. We none of us would know about it. We'd all just be, we would just cancel human history or end it abruptly. Why is that bad? Well, the the only answer there is that it's bad because all of these good things, all of these creative things, all of these beautiful things won't happen in that case. But that is a loss to no one who exists anymore. So, so the that's interesting because one of the reasons I asked that question. I was listening back to an old podcast that Dave and I did on moral persuasion, um, and we read this article, and it was an article called, very famous in philosophy, Why Abortion is Immoral by Don Marquis, and it was an argument for the pro-life position based on this idea of potential that you are robbing a, a living creature of, of, of a future, and 
given that that seems to be why we think killing is wrong in general, there's no reason for us not to think that it's wrong in this case. And it was, it's a really just simple, elegant, and, and fairly effective argument in that it's very hard to pin down it, with, uh, where it goes wrong if it does go wrong. But Dave and I both, I mean, we're both pretty solidly pro-choice. And as much as we recognize that this was actually a fairly compelling argument against our position, it's, we both had to kind of admit that it didn't change our minds in any way about... Let me give you a test case. So I haven't read that paper, but I think I got it based on what you just said. And it does change my mind, or at least I recognize that it could totally change my mind given the right technological environment. So for instance, if you made it very easy to remove this embryo, like painless, no risk to the mother to remove this embryo and grow it up in a vat or in, or in the womb of a surrogate or another woman who wanted it, then the woman's claim upon having an abortion I think evaporates pretty quickly. So, so if you if you have a pregnant woman who doesn't want her this this baby, but someone else does, and this baby presumably you could like grow, transport it out with yeah, a transporter. Right? Yeah, we could we could transport it out or make it just very easy to remove, and then the argument that this is a a viable life that is kind of interesting to the universe and has a claim upon itself, then I think that suddenly becomes hard to dispute. And then, then, the, then the pregnant woman's concern about, well, listen, I don't want to live in a world where I know I have this baby and, and, and now this son or daughter who I never wanted and who I'm now never going to meet. I just don't like the idea of it. Well, given the, the right changes in, in the environment and in culture, I feel like, well, that's defeasible. That, then, I, then I think she might be in a position of someone who we would say, well, just get over it. You know, this is not, it doesn't really matter what you think. This is a person who exists now and, and has his or her own interests. So is that so different in kind from her bringing the baby to term and immediately giving it up for Well, adoption? no, it is. It is because, well, one, bringing a baby to term is its own sort of life deranging experience, right? And every birth, as you know now, is still something akin to a medical emergency. I mean, it's just, it's crazy no matter how many, how many doctors you have on hand. And then you have her experience of having to go through the whole ordeal of bearing a child that she doesn't want and giving it up at that late stage, you know, in the presence of the, the infant now. And like you're, you're imposing, if she says she doesn't want this at two days conception, if the state is imposing this on her, I feel like it's so much of an imposition that she has to be free to decide whether she's going to shoulder this burden. Uh, especially if you make it very clear, like, you know, she was raped or, I mean, just to take the other associations that could be negative with taking this to term and, and it, then it becomes super clear to me. But I, you could, you change enough and then it changes. So this gets us to, gets to something where, you know, you said sort of uh, the, the, you have a certain amount of moral clarity about, uh, uh, about the, the well-being of conscious creatures. I think that's absolutely right. I, my, I think the problem that this this um, that is illustrated by by this topic is that it's. I think a lot of people would think that that's actually the right the right way to approach morality. The question that becomes one of trade offs, 
And when you start doing the calculus, that's where I think the disagreement sets in, where um, people who are pro-life, in some sense, it would be very weird to to be pro-life in, in, in thinking that, that uh, abortion is akin to murder and not being vocally opposed to it. Right? What kind of person would you be if you believed it was murder um, and, and you were weighing pragmatic, um, the, the pragmatic uh, sort of suffering of, of the mom? You, you would say, well, look, like, t- that sucks, right? I mean, there's stuff that sucks in the world, but um, you can't just put a bullet in someone's brain because you're going to be uncomfortable there's some level of of risk that you're just going to have to accept. I think that's where the all of the debate comes in, which is whose interests and how do we calculate them? You can make it more extreme than that. The the member of a of of a, a mob reacting to a mere rumor of a Quran being burned, you could do a, a Vox Populi interview with him and say, you know, what what are you up to here? Why do you want to kill the person who may or may not have burnt this Quran? He could give the same story I just gave, and you know, in consequentialist terms, he could say, "Listen, you you have no idea how much I suffer upon hearing that a Quran was burned. This is the worst thing that has happened to me in twenty years, and I am defending my way of life and my worldview from these kinds of insults because they are so painful. If you put a pain meter on my brain, it's off the charts right now. What I would say to that is, this person is suffering over the wrong things to be." wired in such a way by your culture and your belief system to be disposed to suffer over that kind of thing that much is to close the door to most of what's good about human life. I mean, all the other things that could bring you joy, that could bring you enlightenment, that could relieve this unnecessary suffering and expose you to far more sublime range of experience, right? Like there's a lot you don't understand about how good life could be if you're part of a lynch mob chasing somebody who is rumored to have burned a Quran. To take my moral landscape analogy, this is clearly not a peak on the moral landscape. And we, if we're consequentialists, we should want to get to something as close to a peak as we can direct ourselves toward. And we just have a navigation problem. And lynch mobs organized around bad literature that's clearly someplace we want to migrate away from and toward something you know much more like the lives the three of us are attempting to live and and who knows how much better it could get you do have to here, layer but... you do have to layer then your the argument though right i mean you have to say well it's not just about the welfare of conscious creatures it is a particular way in which i think that we should assess this stuff i mean to get to get to an example that that i think you very sort of wisely brought up with with scott adams when you're talking about um breaking into like the government sort of finding a nest of potential gang members and deporting them right i think i think the example was was perhaps illegal immigrants who were who were gang members um and you say well look maybe i have evidence that three of them are um two of them i'm not sure um but let's deport them all i mean you could you could use some sort of consequentialist calculus to to easily say in those cases the risk to to my country or my people or whatever is so high that it's that it's worth the suffering of of these individuals and you you pointed out what if what if it's a mother of an 8-year-old child and and now you're 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 ruining this this child's life and and you're bringing undue suffering upon the woman it's what's what what worries me is that under the guise of just plain consequentialist calculus you can get yourself to 
to um, sounding like all you, the only assumption that you have is the welfare of conscious beings um, and and start arguing for for some pretty it is my only assumption and I think it is everyone's only assumption when you drill down on what they claim to care about and uh, this extends to even the craziest religious views where people are caring about whether they get into paradise well why was it good to get into paradise and why is it bad to go to hell? Well, still, you're talking about the well-being of conscious creatures. You're just not admitting it. And you're probably talking about fictional creatures. I mean, we, this, we run into this all the time. Where just, just, we have bureaucratic limits on how fine-grained our concern can be about individual suffering. You know, we have to pass a law which decides a question one way or the other. And we know that there may be fairly tragic cases that fall on either side of that law or that policy, right? You know, an insurance company has to deny certain claims, otherwise it couldn't be an insurance company. There will be edge cases that will make that insurance company seem fairly callous. It's just the slippery slope problems where if we, you know, if they spent their time tracking every single story well, then, you know, they, they would go out of business and everyone would be worse off. I'm not, I'm not sure insurance claims are the best example there, but there are, there are certainly examples where you have to be coarse-grained and bureaucratic given the limits of human attention and, and resources. And, and, and that can seem, in specific cases, callous. But I, I think, we're, we're, again, that only becomes intolerable when we can point to an extreme case of suffering that no one can countenance. And it, and it only becomes acceptable when either we're ignorant of the suffering that no one should countenance, or it's a tolerable level of suffering, or we have just tacitly agreed to tolerate it collectively. I, as, as we've been talking about the, you know, the various consequentialist considerations one can raise for and against a particular position, I think one thing that we tend to overlook is something that John Haidt, or at least there's this position, and this is what John Haidt has argued for, you know, when he's not slamming college students, is that we're very good at coming up with reasons afterwards to defend a position that we have already reached through the use of, you know, our emotions or our intuitions. And, you know, something like the abortion debate, it would be, it, it's, that's not one that we come to with a blank slate. And then we're just, you know, I, at least I think we're fooling ourselves if we think we come to that with a completely open mind, and then we're just weighing, you know, the considerations of the future benefits of the of the child against the the hassle and the potential suffering of of the mother and we're just doing that in a completely even-handed manner and just however it all shakes out that's the view that we're going to to hold it i think height is right that moral reasoning and just moral deliberation and the ways in which we uh, arrive at our moral views and the ways in which we argue for our moral views or defend them or justify them is a lot more influenced by sort of your gut reaction that you had. Uh, and it can be complicated reasons why you have that gut reaction, but your gut reactions going in. And that was certainly the case with something like abortion for me, 
I, I was realizing when I was being honest with myself that I just wasn't going to be convinced out of the pro-choice position. I was going to be, I gained a lot of respect for the pro-life position, but I wasn't, you know, that was as far as it's probably possible to take me with rational argument. I don't know if you agree with that. It sounds like something you disagree with, but that seems plausible to me that that phenomenon is fairly widespread. Well, there's a few issues here. I mean, one, one I think Height is probably right much of the time about most people. I think he's wrong a lot of the time about me with respect to how I reason, right? So, so I, I recognize that I'm not the conventional use case, or at least I don't think I am, I and mean, this could be self-deception. This is what, exactly what his theory predicts you would you're believe. A robot, you're, you're, you're a robot, Sam. You're a robot. I'm 95% <laughs> of professors who believe they're above average. That's right. It's sheer coincidence that you are. <laughs> But I mean, but but I can point to examples where I'm pretty clear about how persuadable I am and why and what what's actually anchoring me in cases like this, and I and I can change my position. I mean, so I've changed my position pretty starkly on or completely on pretty polarizing topics. I mean, like like the death penalty, for instance. I'm now against the death penalty, whereas I was once for it. And I'm very in touch with why someone is for it. When I contemplate the case where it's most tempting, you know, you give me the most evil person and you put me in the position of sympathizing with his or her victims, usually his, then I feel like I feel the the lust for vengeance that everyone feels until I until I get a purchase on my whole worldview, you know, when I actually think about the totality of the situation. So it's something I, I think what Height does is he significantly undervalues the potential of reason to change people's moral convictions. And he also, the flip side of this is reason is itself not this bloodless calculating instrument. It is also built on very visceral intuitions about right and wrong and consistency and the, and the need to remain consistent and finding certain propositions doubtful. I mean, I think doubt is an emotion. If you say something that sounds wrong to me and I feel, oh, no, no, that's just, that's not right, it feels like something to feel that way. And that's, it's whether, and that's true whether you've given me an equation that doesn't add up or you've articulated a position that's at odds with how I remember the world to be yesterday or what I think follows logically from what you just said, are detecting the most basic errors in, in anything is a felt embodied experience, it's, and it's, a, it's an emotional experience. So this, this opposition between reason and emotion, as many people have pointed out, doesn't hold much water when you actually look at it. But I, I just think you can reason yourself into fundamentally different positions and stay there and understand how you should weight your your more your apish reactions that threaten to pull you out of it. I have an embodied comfort with inconsistency. Well, Tamler's perfected the art of not being bothered by inconsistency. I think that... Uh... I, I mean, certainly I can feel the burden of consistency. I think it's <laughs> overrated sometimes in uh, moral debate, but that would take us very far afield. Um, the field I want to drag you upon is also takes a, another podcast interview as its 
source, which is the interview you guys just did with Robert Wright about his book on meditation and Buddhism, which I, I think I think Robert's going to come on this podcast probably not for a while, but I think maybe in a couple of months. The title of the book is Why Buddhism is True. So anyway, we have a lot to talk about potentially. Bold, bold claim. <laughs> but you guys seem you guys seem fairly confused, I would say, about some of what he was claiming. I don't know that I agree with everything he said, but I think you're, the, 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 the takeaway message you guys got was that many of the things that are claimed in Buddhism or by people who spend a lot of time in meditation are at bottom paradoxical and really can't be rationally understood or, or just are always going to seem paradoxical, however you state them. And it's, just, it's a matter of taking people at their word for their experience, but even when they're taken at their word, they, they can't really be asked to make a lot of sense. And that is, is very different from the way I see it and, and think I can talk about these things. So things like you know, claiming Just the self clarify, is an illusion. I, I, and, yeah. I don't think we said that it, it was bound to lead to paradox, but that there is a comfort with paradox that many Buddhist people and, and Buddhist uh, people who are trying to sort of expl explicate it, um, that they seem more comfortable with paradox um, than your ordinary person trying to explain something. And also that our language might impose some barriers in terms of trying to articulate some of the aspects of Buddhist thought, Buddhist notion of the self. That's at least what I believe. I, I think that has been oversold significantly. I, I think the people who are most comfortable with paradox just don't know what they're talking about. I mean, they don't, they don't know that it actually can be explained clearly. That's the fear that I always have, right? Where, where I'm like, well, at that point, it, what, how can I evaluate the truth, the, the, the truth claim about something that is inherently, to, to tie into what we were just talking about, seems inherently contradictory. And, and it seems as if there is a view that this is a way to a deeper truth that can't be there is a, a almost a view of a, a release from reason that might be, you know, it might just be that particular strain of Zen that, that made its way to, to Western thought. Um, but, but I, I do worry, uh, I'm very open to, to that, ex, the, the experience of, of meditation and, and the, the sort of claims about not self. But I, I worry at that point that I don't have you know, without getting into exegesis of, of Buddhist texts, which I, I don't, I'm not interested in doing, about those claims that seem, at least on the face of it, to me to be inherently paradoxical and, and embracing a paradoxical view. I think we should leave Zen aside, because Zen has a kind of shtick, which is to use paradox to kind of stifle the, the conceptual mind. And it, it, it's true that, that a kind of relentless conceptualizing of experience is the thing or one of the things you need to cut through in order to have the insights that are being talked about, insights into selflessness, for instance. And so it is a, it's a kind of method. It's sort of like a, it's, a, it's almost like a Scott Adams style method of just, right. uh, just stopping th that part he of the conversation. Maybe uh, Trump is a Zen master. He's a perverse Zen master. <laughs> but in terms of the self being an illusion, that's not really a paradox. I mean, I, I, I feel like I can 
walk you through how that makes perfect sense in my world and doesn't entail any paradox. Sure. I would love to hear that. And, and, and then while you're at it, tell me, like, in, please include how it leads you to care about other people more. Because uh, that's the part where I'm like, well, shit, maybe there are no selves. So why the hell do I care about collective suffering of selves? One problem is that we use the word self in many different ways, and they really are different. And we don't recognize how, how this, the term is kind of sliding across topics. So in one sense, selves are clearly not an illusion. I mean, so, so when I say the self is an illusion, I'm not saying that people are illusions. The self that is, is considered an illusion from the point of view of meditation and, and can be discovered to be such and felt to be such, and that can actually change the way you feel as a person in the world, it's not a matter of discovering that people don't exist. It's a matter of discovering that the, the feeling that you have of being a subject interior to the body, you're in your head, behind your face, riding around in your body as though it were a vehicle. This is the self that most people think they have. Most people don't feel identical to their persons. They don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they're, and to put, I think, I think Paul Bloom uses this phrase, people are, are common sense dualists, where they're, they're, they feel like they're riding around as minds, as subjects inside the body, and they feel like they're, they are the thinker of their thoughts, and that the thinker is something independent of the next thought just arising in consciousness. And they feel like they're an experiencer in the center of their experience rather than being merely identical to a sphere of experience. I mean, another word for this is the ego, the sense of there being a subject. And so that's the thing that is interrogated by a technique like meditation. And if done correctly, that's the thing that can be discovered to be absent. And it can be discovered in a way that's actually not paradoxical. I mean, you can, you can talk about it in a way that can maybe sound paradoxical. You can say, well, how can the subject discover itself to be absent? But, well, the subject is an illusion. The subject is absent, right? This subject. Consciousness isn't an illusion. Thoughts aren't illusions. Perceptions aren't illusions. Everything is, all those things are actually appearing. But this felt sense that there's a center and an, un, an unchanging center in the middle of it, to whom all of that refers, which is appropriating experience in each moment, as though from outside of experience. That's the thing that can be undone through meditation. And then many things follow from that. But again, I, there's, no, there's no paradox there. Can I so ask a question about that? So I, I completely follow you. Obviously, I think there's, I can understand that we're not dualists selves um and i don't even think you know that's something that's certainly exclusive to buddhism um you know most scientists believe that most um uh philosophers now believe that i guess when you said a felt sense just to clarify that... tamler just to clarify most buddhists are effectively dualists though i mean i, I mean most buddhists do think when you when you add to the this picture, the notion of rebirth, right? You know, when the body and brain die, there is something, however inscrutable, that can propagate to a new circumstance. There is a kind of dualism there. I mean, they don't think consciousness and mind are reducible to brain chemistry. So, Okay. So, um, but when you said there is a felt sense, um, and, but there's no feeler anymore, 
So how is there a felt sense when there's no feeler? Well, there is a feeler. The, the feeler is consciousness. To take this from the other side, this is actually one way in which the illusoriness of the self can be established logically. So see if this makes sense. Everything to be noticed has to first appear in consciousness. I mean, to, to notice a sensation, to notice a thought, to notice a mood, it has to appear before the, the floodlights of consciousness. And the self, this feeling of self, is also appearing in some way. It has to have some signature. It has to feel like something to be I. I feels like something. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use it, this word in this way. We wouldn't, feel like, we wouldn't find it inscrutable to hear that there's no such thing as the self. And yet, by virtue of appearing in consciousness, that proves that consciousness is, in some sense, prior to it and transcendent of it. I mean, so it's just, just as you can see an object across the room and by virtue of seeing it, not feel identical to it. And just as you can hear a sound and by virtue of hearing it, having it appear as an object in consciousness, you realize that consciousness is prior to it. And just as you can see a thought arise and, and realize that, well, you're not identical to the thought because it's, there it is. It's just a bit of language or just an image. And consciousness is over here prior to it. Well, so too with this feeling of self, that's also, that has to be appearing in some way, otherwise you would never claim to feel it. And again, this is, this is not a way of having the experience. This is just a, a way of conceptually understanding it. Consciousness is the feeler. It's just, it doesn't feel like a self because the thing that feels like a self is yet another thing that's appearing. It's a, you know, it's a kind of contraction it's a sensation in your face. It's a sensation in your chest. It's something. It's some signature by which you are reading this sense of I into a condition which is actually unstructured by that. It's just a, a sphere of, of experience where things are coming and going in every channel of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and, you know, other sensations as well. You know, you can add proprioception and... and perhaps other things we don't have names for, but there, there's, there's just this flux without a center. The center is only implied. And when you look for the center, the feeling of there being a center can then genuinely drop out, and yet everything else remains. There's, no, there's still sights and sounds, sensations, feelings, and thoughts. So there's, there's a, there are a few things that, that I think I need help with here, which, um, so I, I agree, the the dualism part I, I don't think is what I at least I meant by self because I I accept that there is no special extra stuff that makes us a self. Um, so, but what you might be saying is uh, is per perhaps a couple of things, perhaps both of them. Um, so one, the notion of identity, what what philosophers of identity might talk about, which is what is illusory is that um, that there is cohesion among the experience that can be that can be boiled down. To, so the feeling that that I, David Pizarro, am am the same David Pizarro was yesterday, and that I was five years ago, and when I was in fourth grade, that that is a a product of of sort of just a, a, a mistake that 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 is. You, we are but collections of experiences, and it makes little sense to call these all one thing that is the David Pizarro. And so it could be that the, the sense of identity is illusory. Um, but 
I still struggle with, even if I accept that and I accept that, you know, there's, there's a way in which my language forces me to say, I did this yesterday and I did this 10 years ago. Um, isn't it, it, what I can't shake is the sense that what I mean by self is that thing that is, as my sensory input is taking in information from my environment, I'm listening to both of you and, and um, what I, there is, I think a very meaningful way in which those experiences are mine. And they're different from the experiences that you have. So there's there's that part. And then there's this other part, which I think gets wrapped into this, which is an inflated notion of agency. That is, I am the locus of control over my own thoughts, um, which I can get. I can get why meditation makes you feel, reminds you that you are not in control. There is no thing that's in control of the thoughts, that you are but a collection of your thoughts. But take both of those away, the persistence of identity as an illusion and the the notion that you that there is a thing that is causing agency, causing you to think something. And I still am left with a meaningful sense of self that I that I take it is also being deconstructed here, which is that that there is something meaningful about the senses that I have, the thoughts that I have that you don't. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not taking issue with that. I mean, that I would not expect tomorrow morning to wake up as you. That would be awesome for yeah, you. I won't be surprised to wake up as me <laughs> and not as you tomorrow morning, right? And I would be surprised insofar as, you know, that, that it makes sense to even, I mean, it's kind of a Derek Parfit style thought experiment because to wake up as you would not be to have the memory of having been me, right? It would be to have your memories and then, then I wouldn't even notice. I would just be you. In fact, maybe this is what's happening all the time anyway. Maybe yes. we're doing that all the time. But I mean, in fact, that's that's actually... <laughs> Mind blown, Sam. Mind that, that's blown. That's actually a position that, that... Did you ever read Erwin Schrodinger's book? Is it My View of the World? I think it's, I think it's My View of the World. No. I mean, he was kind of... He was influenced by Vedanta, which is a another way of talking about these things, but, but very close to the, the Buddhist view, despite the fact that Buddhists won't like that. He does talk about consciousness as simply the fact that anything is known. Everything that's particular to you is just being brought before the light of consciousness, and it's being known in the only place it can be known, where and as you are, as you. But this point of view of being, of just knowing, is truly generic and truly interchangeable. And it's, you know, the only thing that's personal about you and your memories is just that collection of of stuff that is changing over time where and as you are experiencing it. And that's the only place it can be experienced. But consciousness itself doesn't have this personal quality to it. I mean, that, that gets deconstructed in Buddhist thought in other ways. And there's, there's this concept of emptiness, which is relevant here, where you, if, you're looking, if you look at the evidence of your body and mind for something solid and unchanging that's really you, well, then you don't find it. I mean, you just find this flux. You find your body changing over time. You find your mind populated by stuff that you didn't author. You know, there's just the fact that you follow the rules of grammar is just not something that you started. You have phrases that got into your head that you now you use and you don't know where they came from. And in some ways, you're less similar with, your, with prior states of yourself than you are to other people in some respects, given that you've changed in various ways. And there might be periods in, in Derek Parfit goes into some of this stuff. With, these are paradoxes of identity where you might remember something in your past very clearly. You know, let's say when you're at age four, 
but just not from when you were 19, say. And so what are you more, how do you make sense of the fact that you have zero episodic memories from that one year of your life, but you, you have, you have them from another, you know, which is your, which is more yourself. But the crucial issue of selflessness from a, from a meditative perspective is, isn't at that coarse grain level of, of thinking about personal identity and trying to make it square with physics or with change or with anything else. It's this feeling or its absence of representing yourself in the world as this in, inner subject, as the thinker of thoughts, or ceasing to do that, and then being free of that feeling. And being free of that feeling has psychological consequences. And whether that happens for a second or an hour, there's a difference between being stable in this feeling or its absence, or just having brief glimpses of it. And then much of what is, is claimed to be transformative about meditation follows from there. I mean, that, that becomes relevant to the increasingly highfalutin claims people make about the promise of meditation and things like enlightenment and you know, Buddhahood and all the other things that, that begin to sound like religion. But there is something fairly radical to be understood here that is as clear and as on the surface as something like the optic blind spot. Whereas like, like if you didn't know about the blind spot and you'd never been taught to glimpse it, you would have no idea that this thing exists. But the moment someone shows you how to look for it, and then you see it, well, then it's undeniable, right? There's this part of your visual field that you are just not getting in information from, and it's just not obvious to you. And this tricky technique has now proven this to you. And then you really can't be in doubt about it. And if ever you're in doubt about it, you just have to look again, and then you, that you resolve your doubts. Meditation does offer that kind of clarity with respect to this feeling of self, where you thought something was there, and then you look, and it was clearly not there, and your finding it not to be there makes it no longer feel like it's there, right? It's not like it still feels like it's there, but I know conceptually it's not there. No, it's actually not there. Yeah, I mean, so... I like I I can't tell whether you're saying something th that is less radical than I thought the Buddhist claim was um in which case you know I I I definitely can grasp that and I understand it and I you know as someone who meditates though I've never been to a retreat but I've been doing it for a while now you know, there's definitely points where I start, and it's and it's and it's very hard to describe where you you really do start to feel this kind of I am a a vessel for a flow of experiences and sensations, and it is a relaxing feeling. It's a really sort of uh, it's a it's it's a kind of release. I, I, I guess the, the issue that I thought I had, and maybe this isn't an issue or maybe I didn't fully grasp what you're saying, is it's still, there still f feels like a me that's noticing that, that's noticing the sensations, that's noticing, that's being aware and mindful of what's going on and 
the hard part for me is if you tell me that me that that's being mindful, that's being aware, that's 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 uh, kind of just really tracking what's going on in my body and outside with the sounds, moment to moment, like that that thing is also an illusion. That's the thing I have difficulty understanding. When you say me, Tamler, just to be clear about what you're claiming, I believe. I understand what you're talking about, and I, I think it is this conventional starting point of feeling like you are a locus of consciousness inside the head who is now paying attention in this act of meditation to objects like the breath and sounds and sensations in the body, but you are located in your head as a subject that's now meditating or, or being mindful. Well, I mean, like, I suppose there are times where, and this is the times that are completely infrequent for me, but also the times where it feels most sort of relaxing, where I'm out of my head and actually in the, like, if I'm feeling the sensation, it feels like there's, it's not mediated by me sort of saying, oh, I'm feeling tingling in my feet, or it's just like I'm in my feet, kind of. Those are really fleeting. Um, so maybe that's it. It's like you sort of become the thing and not, you're not interpreting it. There's no further barrier between you and the experience. Some, is it, is it something like that? There is that. So there is this, and this comes straight out of the, you know, Buddhist teaching. There's just, just in the scene, there's just scene. There's not a seer and things seen. There's just this moment of scene. And that can happen by virtue of paying attention so carefully that for you know a brief moment there is just a moment of seeing or just a moment of hearing and there's no there's no distance there's no sense of being a seer on one side with the object of consciousness on the other it just collapses and again this happens for people in the beginning this happens very briefly when things really start humming on a, a meditation retreat and you're kind of in the flow of mindfulness and it becomes effortless that can characterize much longer stretches of experience where there's just a sense of just phenomenon arising. And so that's also synonymous with not conceptualizing experience. You're in contact with raw sensation rather than thinking about your hand, for instance. A hand is a concept, you know, as a matter of experience, you're just down on the level of tingling and vibration and temperature. And so it, it can be very kind of laser-like, but there is a, a very similar but and a more radical and I would argue more useful insight, which is when you turn that quality of attention on this feeling of being a self itself, to you turn it back on the subject, the mind can kind of go into a, a failure mode there where you look for the thing that's looking and you don't find it, but the not finding is is really conclusive, right? It's not paradoxical, it's not a struggle. It's not like, oh, did it, was that it? Did I see something? No, there's a turning which affects, it's, it's similar to what you say of, you know, there suddenly being no distance between consciousness and this object, but you look for the sense of self and it drops away. And then what, what is left is the totality of everything else that's in consciousness, but it is the experience of consciousness without a center. And that's not the same thing as saying, well, now I'm identical to the universe, although I can understand how people in the context of a religious interpretation or a, or a new age interpretation of an experience like this start talking that way. 
but it is only the world remains on some level, or only consciousness and all of its objects remains, and there is no I in the middle of it. And the moment there seems to be an I, what is actually happening there, once again, you're thinking without knowing that you're thinking. You're lost in thought. And so this, to come back to your initial question, the sense of being the one who is meditating or the one who's being mindful, the sense of being this subject, yes, it is, a, it is an uninspected thought on some level in each moment. There's a kind of an undercurrent of, of still conceptualizing experience and thinking about experience, even when you think you're being mindful of thoughts themselves, that's going uninspected. And that's the kind of the structure of it. It's a, it sounds a lot like it's a it's an exercise in shaking off categories and concepts, um, which intrigues me. Right, so you're al- you're almost sort of disabusing yourself of of these concepts that we use in everyday life to in a pragmatic way of me and and you and what. It, um, but what I what I want to know then is what what is the relationship between that and not being a dick, right? Like. How does that get you there? And is is it uh, one way of asking? Is if it you're is, being a dick, you're lost in thought. <laughs> is it a cons- Is uh, this is this is how how Bob Wright sort of uh, described it? Sort of helped him be be less of a jerk. I don't see a conceptual link there, so it must be an experiential one that makes you a better person after you've yeah, done this. Yeah, well, that, that actually has a pretty straightforward answer. But there's two levels to it. One is in the beginning, you can become less of a dick long before you have an insight into selflessness, just by learning to be mindful and being committed to that. So when you look at the things psychologically that cause you to be a dick, right, that cause you to act out, that cause you to, to, let's say, if you feel angry, to helplessly express your anger in relationship, no matter how inappropriate. What that is, is a fundamental lack of mindfulness. In the worst case, you're not even aware of becoming angry until the words fly out of your mouth, and there's no possibility of being otherwise, right? You see no choice. There's no pause to take because this thing broke over you like a wave, and you know everything got wet. So basic mindfulness, I mean, even, you know, even mindfulness that, that really hasn't revealed much of anything of interest to you psychologically or, or contemplatively, still gives you some kind of two categories of experience. You can be angry and totally lost in it, or you can, you can be aware of anger as a kind of an energy state of your body or an arising emotion, which you then can either act out or be motivated to, to act by, or you can observe as just a change in your person. And the observing mode is different and leads to different consequences. It leads, it leads you to pause before saying something. But as you get better and better at that, what you begin to notice is that all of these negative emotions have a very short half-life. It's impossible to actually stay angry for any significant amount of time, much less be motivated to derange your life or relationships on its basis without continually being lost in thought about why you should be angry or why you have every right to be angry. You have to stay lost in thought. You literally have to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. It's like going back to sleep and getting back into the dream to be angry at one of your dream characters. You have to do that or let it be done to you over and over again 
in order to stay in this state. And, and the moment you become sufficiently mindful, and again, this, this can happen long before any of what I said about selflessness would make sense, you can discover the half-life of negative emotions to be really short, and then you're given some kind of choice where you can say, well, is it worth being angry here? Is, it, is there some ethical purpose served by expressing anger? Or is this just me screwing up my life needlessly? And, and so that's one answer to your question. I'm not holding myself up as someone who has taken this to anything like its ultimate fulfillment. I can speak honestly about the range of my experience, but my, my experience is not of being stably in this place of seeing through the arising of every thought and every emotion. I mean, nothing like it. The minority of my time is spent clearly experiencing what I'm talking about. And most of my time, I'm lost in thought the way everyone is lost in thought. The difference is, and this is a, a very significant difference in one's mindfulness practice, is that you can spend a lot of time meditating, I mean, literally years on silent retreat, and never clearly realize that you can experience selflessness in every moment of even ordinary awareness, you know, off retreat when you were just distracted, you're just watching a movie, nothing particularly meditative is going on. You can cut through to the clarity of selflessness every bit as much there as you can in the most sublime moment in the middle of a, you know, a three-month retreat when you've been doing nothing but meditate 18 hours a day and your experience of the world is completely psychedelic in its diaphanous sense of just, you know, everything is just bleeding into everything else, and there's just no substantiality to be found anywhere. There's a, an experience that equalizes those two, you know, you're just grabbing more popcorn at the movie, and you feel like Jesus about to deliver the Sermon on the Mount because you feel so good and you love all sentient beings everywhere. Both of those experiences are centerless. Both of those experiences are, are just as good as the other for recognizing this thing about the illusoriness of the self. And that can be, can take a long time to experience that. And you have to sort of just be lucky, I, I think. So, so what's to stop you from becoming not an emotional dick, but a strategic dick? So are you now, now what's to stop you from taking over the world with your newfound powers of emotional regulation? To have an evil motive is synonymous with certain things, which now we're talking about no longer feeling or no longer feeling good reason to feel or, or, or being disposed to cut through a kind of selfishness and fear of others and anger and hatred and bias. There's a kind of normative ethical attitude, perhaps not across the board. I mean, I think there, there are serious blind spots in Buddhism just as a philosophy and in Buddhists as people, no matter how much they meditate, that potentially there are moral, what we, we would consider moral blind spots or ways in which culture still influence even supposedly enlightened people in ways that we would find to be non-normative. But there's a, norm a kind of normative ethics that begins to creep in the moment you put this kind of sense of self in question, and the moment you begin to be aware of the, the half-life of both negative and positive emotions, and the moment you begin to become aware that the thing you were looking for in experience so avidly, I mean, the, the gratification of desire, that isn't really the, a durable basis of well-being. So this is actually something that, that also came up in your podcast, this, this discussion of one of the, the punchlines of Buddhism being that life is suffering. It's not quite the punchline, but the punchline is more that 
life is unsatisfactory. The difference is, and the word here, the Pali word here is dukkha, and it's not that life is, is just a reliable circumstance of, of misery. You can, it's easy to get that from Buddhism as well because there's an emphasis on how bad things can go, but it, it doesn't deny that there are different levels of happiness and that some of this happiness can be quite sublime, but because experience is always changing, because as there is no stability, to go into this domain of experience seeking stability, seeking to never have any more problems, seeking to scratch an itch and to have it stay scratched, that's a misapprehension. That is bound to be frustrated. So if you're, if you're seeking stability in a, in a condition which is, by definition, not stable, you will suffer. The thing you are clinging to will fall apart in your hands, you know, and, and, and you'll get more of the thing you thought you were successfully keeping away. And so that this flux of pleasant and unpleasant experience is going to keep coming, and you, in seeking to only have one and none of the other, you are actually at war with a circumstance that you can't change. And so that changing your attitude toward that is part of the program. But, but again, mindfulness of its nature changes one's attitude toward that. I mean, because, because a reaction, a strong reaction to pleasantness, a grasping reaction, like, oh, I want more of this, or I want to keep this, or a strong reaction to unpleasantness, just aversion, like keep this away, that is what you're canceling when you're being mindful, when you're training in that kind of meditation. And that, that, has, that has ethical implications because you're no longer trying to control experience in quite the same way. Yeah, I guess that this is the part that I think we um, that that can go both ways, right? So there are times where I will want to grasp onto experiences, and so say, "Oh God!" Rather than just going on my electronic devices, I'm actually talking to my daughter, and we're joking around, and we're having dinner at the table, or we're watching a movie together. And this is an awesome experience. This is a beautiful experience. And I want to take steps for this kind of experience to happen more often, and not just sink into the normal, habitual kinds of things that we sometimes do. And that, that desire to want to continue experiences that you consider to be both good, pleasurable, but also worthy, um, seems like a good, or at least I, I don't see any problem with, with having that. And yes, it opens yourself up to disappointment when that can't continue. But for while you had it, you made the most of it. And there doesn't seem like there, there's anything wrong with that, but it also seems like sometimes what's being recommended is to just enjoy the experience and not try to or feel like you want to replicate it or not feel like you want it to to stay any longer than it's going to stay naturally. And I don't know, like it's, it's, it's sometimes you do have to take active steps to preserve something that, or at least feel like you're taking active steps. I know that's, you know, on this view, that's kind of an illusion, but, it, but from the subjective 
phenomenon of it. It's like, okay, so we're going to have, we're going to turn off all devices three times a week and we're going to have dinner at the table four, you know, whatever it is that you do to get yourself. But you're doing that in order to preserve the experience. You see what I'm saying? I wouldn't dispute that at all. And actually, even the Buddha, you know, at least in certain of his moods, wouldn't dispute that at all. I mean, I, I think there's there's a sutta in, in the Pali Canon called the Mahamangala Sutta, which is almost like a rank order or a kind of a ladder of happiness where, you know, he just kind of lists various things that are, and again, I, I say this, I'm a little self-conscious about how much I seem to be shilling for Buddhism here because I, I don't consider myself a Buddhist and I'm, I've said fairly critical things about Buddhism as well insofar as it can look like a religion. But just to give you the Buddhist view here, they would fully acknowledge that there are many conventional kinds of happiness that are real forms of happiness. They just happen to be impermanent. I mean, they, they end of their own accord. I mean, people go to sleep at night or people suddenly get a pain in their knee and things change or people die. Or I mean, so there's nothing's permanent there. Nothing is truly stable, but they wouldn't dispute that there are deeper or higher levels of pleasure to be experienced in this world, which it's, it certainly makes sense to want, and it makes sense to want some more than others. And you can kind of climb this ladder to the point where, you know, life could get so good under this view that, well, now you're just noticing increments of better where, you know, you're kind of living in, in a kind of paradise. But still, on the Buddhist view, if you look very closely, right, you'll see that there's an instability here. It's not, it, you can't maintain it perfectly. And the work you're doing to maintain it in certain respects is based on an uninspected error. And there's actually more pleasure awaiting you as a conscious being to change the game, you know, and, and to kind of equalize your experience so that you're no longer holding on to things when they change and end, and, and, so that you're actually. You know, you can savor moments of experience which now wouldn't strike you as worth savoring. You know, they're, they're not actually beautiful to you yet, but beauty is, is largely in the eye of the beholder here. And you could actually be as satisfied with the next moment of experience that you wouldn't single out as being, you know, something you were trying to maximize or create. I mean, so it's not, it's only in the kind of its highest mode that it seems to level all distinctions between experience. You talk about somebody who doesn't really care about the difference between pleasure and pain, right? But until, until you got there as a meditator, well, then there's nothing wrong with sort of climbing this ladder of, of sublime experiences where you recognize that having quality time with your daughter is better than squandering it, bickering, or just being lost in your devices. I mean, there's, you know, there's a whole, lots of teachings about skillful means and and, you know, wise uses of attention. And I mean, this is why on, on the Buddhist view, you would ever bother to live an ethical life, because it, it actually is, is a kind of raft that you get in to cross a river. And it really it is really the thing you need to cross the river. But, you know, on the Buddhist view, you then when you cross the river, you don't pick up the raft and carry it on your head. You know, where, where we're at, yes, of course, we're going to make distinctions between better and worse experiences you know, that's really the the only rational thing to do, given how good life can be and how needlessly bad it can be if we don't do it. Well, sign me up. This is like uh, <laughs> Trump University, <laughs> you know? Right. I'm sold. So, I, well, in, in this case, <laughs> you didn't pay as much hairs. as you would have at Trump University. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's true. It's amazing how cheap like like these kinds of things. There are all sorts of great podcasts and websites, and you can do this for free. Yes, you can. That's right. Well, listen, guys, we've come to the end of of many hours. What are we? We're we're close to three hours here. Maybe if I've cut some of this down, we'll be closer to two and a half hours. But it's, it's not going to be much below that. But it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and it's I kind of felt like. I wasn't quite on your podcast, but I was not really aware <laughs> that it was my podcast some of the time. <laughs> That's, uh, you knew yeah. what you were getting yeah. into. Well, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we really appreciate it. We hope to have you back on our podcast soon. We certainly get a lot of requests for that. And yeah, we didn't talk about Jordan Peterson. That was the other one. No. People yeah, told that was the one other request. All right, well, we'll next, time, next time. Yeah, next time. <laughs> thank thanks so much yeah, for having us yeah do you want to put out a, a twitter address for anyone sure at very bad wizards at tamler at peas if anybody wants to get in contact with us and thank you to all the sam harris listeners who who've jumped over to listen and, to us uh, as well. very bad wizards.com will take you to our website and um we hope we get some even more new sam harris listeners out of this because that's they've been good to us overall May they be better behaved. <laughs> Listen, guys, thanks again. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.